Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just had the pleasure of talking with Mary Terrell about her new book, Catching Nature in the Act, Real Muir and the Practice of Natural History in the 18th Century. This came out very recently in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, a special shout out is due here to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin for making it possible for each of us to be here independently for different reasons, but that itself made it possible for us to talk in person for this interview, which is always a special treat when that happens. So the book takes us into the worlds, the spaces, and the practices that collectively made up the field of natural history in the 18th century in the Francophone world. And it uses a central figure to anchor us within that sort of very rich tapestry of practices and people and objects without being a biography of that person. So in a lot of ways, this is kind of a model for how to use a central figure as an anchor to tell a kind of set of stories that aren't just about that person. It's a story that takes us into the histories of the household, the family, the relationships between the natural and physical sciences, the history of practices, the importance of correspondence and collaboration, And really interestingly, a history of practices of observation, of really modes of learning how to see and see in new ways. And these are all bound up in the stories that Terrell tells in this book. It's also, um, it must be said, full of really fascinating stories that are a lot of fun to read. And one of the things about this book is a lot of the figures are clearly really enjoying and getting a lot of pleasure out of cutting the tongues off of caterpillars or um, putting stockings onto chickens or, you know, watching frogs and taffeta pants mate. Um, And I'm being, you know, I'm picking some of the most, um, I think, amusing examples but these are part of a larger set of stories that reveal and that I think transmit to the reader, to to you and to me, the joy of this kind of work as much as it was real intense work for the people who were doing it. So it's a great book on many levels. It really was a pleasure to talk about it. And I hope you have a chance to um, get your hands on the book and to read it. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening.
I'm here today to talk with Mary Terrell about her new book, Catching Nature in the Act, Realmuir and the Practice of Natural History in the 18th Century. And that's the first of probably many times that I'm going to butcher his name, but that's okay. okay. So welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Mary, and thanks very much for taking the time to talk with me today about your new book. Thanks so much for asking me, Carla. I'm happy to be here. Of course. So Mary, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background and specifically how did you come to work on the history of science with a focus on the Francophone world and natural history? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess really the origin point of my interest in the history of science is lost in the mists of time because I've been in the field for um, over 25 years now. But um, I was trained as a historian of science in a time when the focus, I would say, was on ideas, and I would say my own intellectual trajectory has moved from what was more of a history of ideas approach to the history of science into um, what I do now, which is more history of practices, history of how people are in the world, what it means to be a a scientist, and so on. And um, I think that that is um, relevant for where this book is coming from, because It's quite different from my first book, which was focused on... I wrote a book about um, Maupertuis, who is also an 18th century man of science, um, involved in lots of different um, subject areas. Um, And in that book, I was uh, really looking at how the... um, Well, either call it the content of his scientific work or the intellectual side of things was related to his way of being in the world as a man of science. Um, and I, yes, I moved more towards, um, practices in this book. And as I'm sure we'll talk about how that plays out in the context of natural history, 18th century natural history, but I've always worked on 18th century science. And that really is my that is my has been my focus, um, and it's a world I by now know pretty well, and I can't really imagine, uh, you know, moving on into some other context because it's so much work to get familiar with a context like that. So. Yeah, and it's um, I should say right off the bat that I've already told uh, Mary this, but I'll just say it straight out for listeners. I really loved this book, and one of the things that's so beautiful about it is it incorporates such a of a detailed attention to the kinds of stories that the people you're writing about are telling in their sources, mm-hmm. that it really opens up this world in a way that's not just a matter of bringing us into experiments that are happening, but bringing us into the seashore and into the home and into the kitchen. And um, it's just, it's a really beautifully narrated book. And so Thank we'll you. talk about um, moments, mm-hmm. I'm sure, along mm-hmm. the way um, when we get there. So the book explores, as you've already discussed, um, practices of natural history in the Francophone world in the 18th century, and it, focus on, it focuses on the works and networks of the particular one particular figure. So how did you come to decide to focus mm-hmm. on this particular figure and to write a book-length object about him and his networks and practices? Yeah, that's a good question, because since my first book was also about one particular figure, albeit also about all the people around him, I really didn't want to do that again, and I ended up doing it again because my original idea was to write about networks of uh, natural history in the 18th century by taking uh, 
well, my idea was originally three different people and as nodes in this in these networks and um, working through how these nodes were different in different places. So I had somebody in France, somebody in Geneva, and somebody in the Netherlands. But it turned out that it was just too big, and I couldn't I couldn't manage it. And as, a, as and then I had to make a decision. And um, Rayomur was central to those people as well. And those people, Charles Bonnet in Geneva and Pierre Lyonnais in The Hague, do make important appearances in this book. But I ended up reframing it um, really for, you could say, practical reasons. But at the same time, it was also in recognition of how central Réaumur was to, the, to natural history in this period uh, throughout Europe. He was extremely well-known and well-connected, and you know he had... He, he was um, in correspondence with all kinds of different people, and it just seemed to make sense. I would actually have preferred to not have written a one-man book again, but, you know, it turned out that the natural history was really, in many ways, focused on... And, and also he was a figure that... Well, like Bonnet and Lyonnais, too, um, if you asked somebody at the time, you know, who is right at the center of natural history, they would have said, Ramir would have been right there at the top of the list. And at the same time, there is very little scholarship on him. And so it was partly the combination of how central he was at the time and how little known he is now, or at least was until my book came out. And and I should say, just again, from the perspective of one reader, um, it really doesn't read like a book about him, right? It really does. Yeah. It doesn't read like yeah. a biography at all. It really mm, does yes. read like a, a book that uses him as an access point to look at something larger and something more right, multi-sided. Right, right. And I should also say it isn't a biography in really any sense in that, although I do at times get into very detailed you know, situating him in his world, I don't try to cover everything. Réaumur was somebody who worked on many, many different things, not just natural history. And I didn't make any attempt at comprehensiveness um, because that would have been a totally different book. And yeah. Well, thank you. So let's get into it yeah. um, and get into the terrain of natural history. Uh, though natural history in the 18th century Francophone world wasn't a discipline, and you make this point very clearly at the beginning of the book, it did encompass a community, and a community of all kinds of different people working in not just different places, but different kinds of places, but who shared a dedication to some common sorts of practices. And you list some of these um, early on in the first chapter, observing, cultivating, chasing, collecting, experimenting, dissecting, preserving, drawing, and describing creatures. So it's a book that really focuses in on their work on creatures in particular and not on the kind of botanical yes, aspect yes, of things. Yes. And that's a very deliberate decision. Yes. And I think it's a really great decision. So the book really beautifully explores the really the range of kinds of people, the diversity of kinds of people that made the production of knowledge about the natural world a part of their intimate daily lives. And so as part of this, um, this is a way, or there's a way in which, um, and you say this explicitly at the beginning of the book, the 
work is integrated not just within a larger historiography of practice in the history of science, but historiography of place and places and the kinds of places that are not, you know, the laboratory necessarily or the field, um, but the other sorts of intimate daily practices and places um, that we can find practices of natural history happening. And so these are some major, I think, historiographical threads that run mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. all the chapters. So the central figure in the book is this guy, Réamur. Am I butchering that? Réaumur. Réaumur. Yeah. Réaumur. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So you call him in the book the prototypical observer who was mired in providentialist theology. And the interest um, or the kind of situation of this figure within a larger frame of the relationship between theology or physico-theology and natural history is an important part, at least um, from the perspective of one reader, of what's happening early in the book. And it's importantly different from how some other scholars who have brought together histories Mm -hmm. of theology and history of natural history have framed that relationship. And I think it's importantly different from that. And that's one of the important contributions early in the book. So would you maybe start us off by saying a little bit about that? How, Mm -hmm. um, how ought we understand Réaumur? Sorry. <laughs> um, at the particular intersection between um, theology or physical theology and natural history, what's important for us to understand about the way he's um, mm-hmm. situated there? Okay, well, so um, I guess I should say that um, one of the ways that natural historical writing from this period um, has been read. Um, and rightly so, in large part, is as nat- what I call natural theology or physico-theology, um, i.e. seeing God's hand in nature um, and studying nature in order to see and admire God's design. Um, now, Ramir was certainly part of that, but what I go to some uh, lengths to show is that that doesn't do enough to um, towards helping us understand, you know, w- what was motivating him and his and his circles of of people. That is, they all kind of took natural theology for granted. I would say, um, but when you get in, when you as a naturalist, when a person as a naturalist in the 18th century got into the nitty gritty of the dailiness that you were just referring to. Um, the uh, um, stepping back and saying, "Isn't it wonderful that the you know the proboscis of the bee is perfectly designed for the flower, etc.?" That becomes it's taken for granted, but it isn't doesn't get at what you need to know to, or ever, sorry, what you need to do to really unpack that. So they're really interested in unpacking these very simple views of design um, without at all, I mean, I would not at all say that, you know, Raymer was not um, a proponent of natural theology. I just wanted to um, really push the notion that there's more to doing natural history in this period than natural theology. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so that is a kind of um, revisionist line, I would say, Um and at the same time, I think it makes the whole story more interesting because natural theology, I mean, it's all sort of the same 
the same over and over again, the same argument over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found was that just the richness of the variety of not just the variety of, you know, what's out there in nature, but the variety of approaches these people took to trying to figure out, well, what's going on. Right. And um, mentioning these people mm -hmm. actually really nicely segues into um, my next question, mm -hmm. or the next mm -hmm. thing I want to talk about. So you focus here, you um, bring us early on in the book into the two or the fact of the two major institutions of natural history in Paris. This mm -hmm. is the Academy of Sciences and the Royal Botanical Garden. And in var at various points of the story, we're going to see and kind of inhabit both of those spaces. Now, the Academy, in your words, became a clearinghouse for new observations of all kinds. And that fact of the Academy as a clearinghouse really points to a really important part of um, what the book is doing with this figure. And that is looking at the ways that he's recruiting and developing and network, a network of collaborators, a network of contributors that are important both in terms of um, sort of documentary correspondence and also material um, exchanges and, mm -hmm. and working together in, in lots of different ways. And you talk at length about the importance of that network. And that's one of the really um, clear things I think that comes out really nicely early in the book. Now, that brings us to um, what at least seemed like it was one of the important sources to get at that. And that is um, Ramur's correspondence mm -hmm. um, and sort of the ways of getting at that network through the kinds of sources that mm -hmm. were available. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the source base for getting mm -hmm. at that kind of network? Um, what, you know, to what extent was the correspondence central and in what ways and what other mm -hmm. kinds of sources did you find most helpful and interesting and important to get at that networking and, and sort of history of collaboration? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so... I guess the thing with, uh, that made it possible to do this project is that quite a lot of Ramirez's correspondence survives, um, mostly, although not exclusively, letters written to him, and there is a major collection in the archives of the Paris Academy of Sciences, which was kind of the core collection that I used, although I certainly found things in other places as well. Um, but the correspondence was not that survives. It's not by any means um, complete. So there were always, uh, always gaps. Um, but uh, what I found was that, on the one hand, there's the network of correspondence that are feeding things into Réaumur in his capacity as an academician and that he's then going to transmit to the, to the academy. But on the other hand, there's even a wider network of people who don't, because it was possible to have an official designation as correspondent of the academy, and you had to have a named correspondent who was a member in the academy. That was kind of a, the formal, but it was way more than that in his correspondence. Um, you find all sorts of people, some of whom are only represented by one letter, um, and some of whom are represented by long series of letters. So in trying to, and I didn't try to reconstruct the network in any kind of prosopographical way, um, because, well, for a variety of reasons, but it just seemed like it was going to be impossible um, to do that, because it was so uneven, the, the record, what survives. Um, so instead, I tried to get a sense through um, exemplary cases, I guess you could say, of exchanges of the range of kinds of people, kinds of interests, and kinds of work people were doing. 
to kind of flesh out this network because I don't want to give the impression at all that it's a mechanical network that was just like, you know, he's managing it at the center and all these people are feeding things into him. It's very much more back and forth in all kinds of different ways. Um, but also many of the people in Ray Muir's network have their own networks. They have their own local networks. And these are not just correspondence networks, but face-to-face -face encounters, uh, exchanges, etc. They have their own other long-distance networks. Um, you know, people are intermediaries for other people. I mean, it's very complex. And to map out the actually how that worked you know, sociologically would be extremely difficult. Um, and again, you know, I tried to do it more impressionistically to make it more, to, to, to pull the reader in more. Um, and I tried to, so, but very often I would have a correspondence where um, I could tell from the letters quite a bit about what this person was interested in and so on, but I might not know anything about the person um, because uh, it was a relatively unknown figure or, um, yeah. So I spent a fair amount of effort to try to find out. Um, in some cases it was very difficult and I still, you know, what I know about the person is basically through their correspondence. In other cases, you know, it's a well-known figure and so on. So I tried to use the sources in a, um, kind of um, selective, almost qualitative way, right? I never tried to do anything that was a, you know, mapping of intensities of correspondence in different places or anything like that. I tried to draw on the correspondence to get into these kinds of uh, intellectual encounters, physical encounters, exchanges of all sorts, to try to get into the daily life of the whole thing. And you referred to this before, but it's, I, I really use the correspondence as a way into the very dailiness of the work and the engagement with the subjects of the work, which are the, in many cases, insects, or it could be birds or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Were there any moments in your, since we're talking about sources and since this is such a, it seems like such a fascinating archive of material, were there any moments in your work with this correspondence where you were really surprised? Um, I'm sure the answer is yes, right? I mean, it's, it's always going to be yes um, for any of us who do work with uh, sources like this, but um, any moments that were particularly surprising to you in a way that changed how you were thinking about the story you were telling or changed how you were thinking about the project um, that come to your mind right now? Well, you know, the the thing that I started realizing after, I, I, I kind of have to talk also about the published, my published sources, which is Ramir's writings as well here, because I, what I, I didn't expect to find in the published sources so much um, explicit reference to exchanges that I could also corroborate um, in the correspondence. In other words, Ram, you're often in print, recognizes correspondence, collaborators, you know, suppliers, informants um, of various different um, um, kinds. And so I was able to connect up what was happening informally through the correspondence with what ended up, what ended up in, in print. And there... I, mean, I don't know if that's surprising exactly, exactly, but it ended up giving me kind of a uh, a way to kind of, I guess, flesh out or enrich, you know, what because the thing is in the correspondence, they're often um, 
apart from the individual, the, you know, the very detailed observations, all of the other stuff in the letter about other people and, and so on, it's, it's often you don't know what they're referring to or you don't know how to trace those connections out. Um, so, I mean, it's not maybe not a very uh, good example, but I certainly was looking always for, in these letters, for revealing, you know, revealing moments. Like, I don't know, if, um, maybe I'm jumping ahead of our of our story here a little bit, but the, um, you know, when, for example, the title phrase, Catching Nature in the Act, you were probably going to ask me about that, uh, comes out of, it's actually comes out of, um, I found it in more than one place, but it comes out of an exchange in a, in a, in a letter where this, where Gilles Bazin in particular says, you know, I've been watching these butterflies and really it's like catching nature in the act. And um, that was so really gave me some insight into how what's motivating him, right? And this goes back to the previous question about natural theology, because what's motivating him is just the, at that moment, is just this sort of the thrill of the chase kind of thing. Um, and that's very much present in the immediacy of the accounts in the letters. Um, yeah, so... I guess I'll stop there. Yeah. No, that's actually great because it brings us really nicely into the next chapter, um, which is Catching Nature right. React. Um, and Bazan is one of the central figures of that chapter. So this chapter um, opens by describing naturalist interest in observing not exotic species, but in the kinds of insect mm-hmm. species that you could find in your backyard, in a roadside hedge, the sorts of... Um, the ways we think, it really, I think, refocuses our attention as readers of the history of natural history on the importance of what was at home in many senses of the word, um, whereas a lot of the you know, literature on the history of natural history has mm-hmm. tended to, and I don't say this as a critique, but rather has tended to focus on the study of exotica. This really brings it, um, us to the importance of what could be found in the spaces at home in many different respects. So it looks at, um, it follows a range of naturalists and looks at their practices in generating social networks. And I use networks loosely, not as a kind mm-hmm. of systematic um, kind of a, a stable object, but um, building networks both um, in a daily routine that incorporated observation and also in um, routines of letter writing and letter exchange. And you argue here that sociability is really crucial um, to the naturalist's ability to both kind of refine their techniques and also to understand specimens and to exchange specimens. Okay, so um, a lot of the cases here, and Bazan um, is one of them, um, bring us into the processes of knowledge, transformation, circulation, exchange that was happening well before any of this material got codified in um, sort of formal academy sources. And there's a lot that was happening before that ever happened um, and was sort of published um, in those kinds of materials. So um, Bazan uh, reflects on his great pleasure um, in catching nature in the act and the theme of pleasure. Um, comes up in the pleasure that he and others had in this process really nicely in this chapter. Now, he, um, and you were just talking about him, so I'll focus on him. He kept hundreds of bugs at all stages of development under observation, uh, observation in his rooms. And he was doing things like gluing glass fragments to cocoons to be able to try to see um, butterflies inside. Now, this speaks to the larger, or one of the larger themes of this chapter, which was, the, as I saw it, the importance of the kind of spaces and places that this mm-hmm. knowledge was being formed in. So 
Maybe um, looking at Bazan as an example, but not necessarily, whatever example you're inspired to talk about, can you talk to us a little bit more about the kinds of spaces mm -hmm. um, where we can find these sorts of practices mm -hmm. at this part of the story and, and what's important for us to understand about that? Okay, well, let me just say something briefly first uh, with respect to, to the um, sort of everydayness of these ob observations as opposed to exotica, just by pointing out that um, Ramuer and Bazin were also interested in the exotic, but they, uh, you know, things that come as dead specimens from distant places, you can't watch them making their nests because they're not alive anymore. So um, the in it's the interest in the living uh, creatures that I think, and you pointed to this before, is really um, driving these investigations. Um, and that is to say that these guys are interested in so many different aspects of, well, in the case of insects, let's say, it's not just how they're structured and how the mechanisms of their bodies work, but it's also um, their behavior, the possible uh, uses that they might be put to their aesthetic appeal, it could be, or just the very weirdness of some of the processes that these insect transformations that these insects um, go through. So that's just uh, to start off with. But the, um, yeah, the pleasure of the pursuit is very much tied to this notion of sociability, because in the, in the letters, um, and in the case of Bazin, it's kind of an interesting situation, because he was a friend of Réamur's. They knew each other from Paris, um, but at a certain point, several years into their uh, acquaintanceship, um, Bazin went with Ramur to his country place, and this is one of the spaces, is his um, provincial estate in the um, near La Rochelle in the west of France, um, and spent the vacation period, Ramur spent the vacation period there every, every year, the academic vacation of two months. Um, Bazin went with them and stayed on for a couple of years. Um, and so Ramur at that point had somebody on site in his very familiar um, manor house there in, um, in the provinces who was not just supplying him with things in Paris, but carrying on these investigations that you, that you refer to. And so, but it's very much, those investigations were very much carried on in light of or in parallel with the person, you know, the face-to-face, -face, I should say, you know, investigations that they'd already done and that they would do again um, next year. So it was very much sociable in that sense. That is, people often... Uh, pursued these um, kinds of investigations together. Um, so they might be sociable via letters or they might be sociable in person, but very often the court, I mean, this isn't always true, but very often the correspondents are known to each other personally and they get together at certain points when, of course, you then have a gap in the correspondence. Um, but yeah, so the places. Um, yeah, that was one way that I found of getting um, getting into the locating of these experiments, observations, interventions of various kinds in particular rooms, in particular places, and uh, you know, particular gardens, hedges, fields um, that you uh, referred to before, and that was a way. 
I use to sort of bring these investigations to life. So if you read a description of how an insect builds its nest, let's say, or spins its cocoon, um, that's a sort of series of steps of how the insect proceeds. It's kind of abstracted um, from its context. But how these are these uh, investigations are often recounted as kinds of stories about how not just how the insect proceeds but where it's happening how the you know leaf was unrolled to reveal where the egg case was or you know what you have to do to be able to see the aphid um, giving birth to its young um, and things like that and so you know these are all kind of minutia um, but they add up to narratives that end up being narratives about how, in the case of insects, how the insects proceed, but they're also narratives about how the naturalists proceed. And those narratives often involve interacting with each other, right? So, and that, that depends. Sometimes they're working alone and sometimes they're working with other people, but very often, let's say, Bazin, writing to Réaumur in Paris will say, yeah, I saw Mr. So-and-so the other day and we took a walk in the fields and we found you know, X and I brought it back and it's in, you know, your back study there where the temperature is just right. And so Ramuer can picture where that is. And they're very much lived in spaces. They're lived in by the sub, by the insect subjects and they're lived in by the naturalists and their guests and friends and so on. And there's a kind of just um, from the perspective of a reader and for the reader, there's an element of the pleasure that Mm -hmm. comes out of these accounts. I mean, Bazan is really geeking out over yeah. the, you know, discovering the caterpillar tongue and everything. That's just, it, it makes it really fun to read as well. It really communicates in a way that gives pleasure to the reader of mm-hmm. um, these accounts. So I want to thank you for yeah, that. He's probably the most explicit about that, but I think yeah. that you do see that in a lot of people. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a thrill, um, but they're also at the same time trying to be as thorough as possible, trying to make sense of what they're seeing and, you know, they're being inventive. So it's not just, oh, gee whiz, this is cool, but it's very much, okay, so what can I do in this situation to make something visible, something which can't be seen visible, um, Mm -hmm. as in the putting the little piece of glass on the end of the chrysalis, which is a fairly, you know, um, it's a, it's a minute operation. You can almost not quite imagine how it was done, but it was also very mundane. And you can then see something that you couldn't see before. So, right. yeah. So as we move, speaking yeah. of seeing and, mm-hmm. um, and invisibility and visibility, this actually brings us into the next chapter. So this next chapter looks at the way Raelmuir integrated practices of natural history into his own household. And among the uh, many things that you talk about in this chapter, and I won't ask you to talk too much about it, but I'll just mark it for readers or for listeners because it's important. Um, You make the important point here that naturalists were making use of practices and instruments that were coming from the physical sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, And this seems to be a really, you know, you talk about Réaumur's process is problem solving. And this seems to be a really important part of the work um, that the book is doing. So I'll mark that and I'll leave that there. And if you want to come back to it and talk about that, um, we can do that. 
Um, but another thing that you talk about um, in this chapter in terms of bringing us into his household is the importance of other people he was living with or working with who included hired assistants and helpers. They included artists. They also included a um, mademoiselle, okay? And I'm not going to try to, I will leave that to you, okay. um, who becomes really, really important to this story and really interesting and not always clearly definable, but super important way. So can you talk mm-hmm. about her? Okay, sure. Okay, so um, actually this was one of the things that was surprising when I started looking into the household was how many people were there who were on the scene who actually lived there. And it was also surprising. I mean, I knew about this artist, Mademoiselle de Moutier, her name was, um, from some... um, sort of passing references um, in in the literature. Um, there were a few documents where she was named, but basically she was more or less invisible um, until I started um, sort of trying to find out where she was. And it was surprising when I figured out that she, her mother, and her sisters actually lived in the household with Raymond. Now, there's a long kind of backstory there, which took a lot of work to sort out, I have to say, because um, none of this was in the the kinds of sources we've been talking about um, before, trying to figure out wh- what kind of family was this and why, how were they connected to Raymond. And, you know, the first um, assumption that everybody makes when this story comes up is, well, she must have been his mistress. Um, and I have to say that while that does make a nice story, I really have found zero evidence for that. And I'm not opposed to it. You know, I don't have any problem with that if it was true, but I don't know that it was true. And I did find a lot about her family. And so if she was his mistress, it was a maybe makes it even weirder in the sense that her mother was there in the apartment with her and so on. So I don't really know. But um, leaving that aside, her work as an illustrator was absolutely essential to his publication project um, on insects. He wrote six volumes, he published six volumes on insects and left several more unpublished at his death. And they were lavishly illustrated. And she, um, although he had initially worked with other illustrators, it was really important for this the kind of... Um, intensive project he was engaged in to have somebody there. And the fact that she was in the household, she was um, in the household with her family before she got into illustrating. So it's not like he went looking for an illustrator and found this woman and brought her in. It was more that there were, um, um, there were, she had family connections to a very close personal friend of his, and that's how they, her family got in connected with his household. And they probably um, had gone through some sort of reversal of fortune, which meant that they needed a place to live, and that is sort of at the at the in the background. But she actually, um, you know, she she was quite talented. Not she's not a phenomenally talented illustrator. If you look at her drawings and compare them to other um, illustrators of the period, they're not technically super accomplished, but they are, um, you know, very clear, very detailed, and they they do what Ray Muir wanted them to do is they illustrate um, whatever it is that he was wanting to illustrate in any particular case. Okay, so she learned how to make this kind of drawing from other artists who were 
present, not living there, but who had been brought in to make these drawings. And she became an integral part of the household really over decades. And they worked together, not only on, I mean, the bulk of her work that we can see, because she left, you know, hundreds and hundreds of drawings, many of which were engraved for the publications and some of which survived just as as unpublished drawings. Um, She was also intimately involved in the kinds of daily observations and investigations and so on that that we've been talking about. And so for that... Um, because there are no letters, I have no letters from her whatsoever, um, and um, there are no letters between the two of them, mostly because they were in the same place a lot, um, but also because whatever letters there may have been uh, do not survive. Um, I, what I found was that in many, many letters of, from people who visited the household, um, they very often mention her, they send greetings to her and her family, and so she, you know she was clearly part of the, the, the domestic circle. But what I also started finding is in the printed text um, of the Rayleigh's work on insects, there are very often references to an anonymized mademoiselle um, who um, it's clear you know, once you know what's going on, that he's referring to her, and he doesn't name her because she doesn't want to be named, he says, Um, and that's kind of a convention. Um, But it's clear that when he refers to her, she's making observations. And so those, mm, they're kind of passing references sometimes, but they're always part of these little narratives about about one investigation or the other. Um, Show her, you know, taking apart the grain that's infested with an uh, an insect, um, you know, the larva of an insect, and examining what that insect is doing and speaking with him about it and then going back to it. And it's clear that he it's not the kind of a working relationship where he's just saying, okay, draw this, but she's very much uh, involved in the investigations. She's going out into the woods with them and others. She's... Um, you know, keeping pets in the yard. And I don't know. I mean, I don't have, I don't know the full range of what she did, but I was able to tease out from these passing references. There are a few manuscript uh, notes where he actually mentions her observations. So those are even more helpful because he does actually name her, Um, but kind of triangulating around from these different sources to try to put this person who was invisible except for her drawings um, into the picture, and it just makes the whole domestic scene that much uh, that much richer. Um, and at the same time, of course, there's the very you know um, a kind of appealing from our point of view aspect, which is that this person who is has been invisible to us was certainly not visible to the people who came to Ramuer's house, of which there were many. Um, and as well as to the pe- other people who lived there, the other assistants and so on. So she was, um, you know, it's kind of interesting how that happens, is that what you might think about how these invest... Well, until you start looking at the very dailiness of it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of this, the, the kind of, um, these kinds of interactions that just are invisible. Yeah. Right. And one of the really, um, I'll just again mark this, but another really interesting and I think important historiographically part of what you're doing um, with that relationship in the chapter is that it kind of challenges the prevailing tendencies in the historiography of science and the family and the household that assumes the family 
Yes. yes, Um, yes. And this is really a, a way of thinking about a different kind of family, right? That's produced by the household rather than um, entering that relationship from the other direction. So I think it's um, it's really important historiographically because of that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the next couple of chapters take us into the modes of seeing, the kinds of seeing that are produced by um, not just Raymur's um, network, but also the experience of reading his texts mm-hmm. and what happens from that. So I'm not going to, purely in the interest of time, yeah. I'm not going to ask you about every fascinating thing in this chapter. And there are so many, and we'll get to them and I want to talk about the polyps or the aphids, but I'll just kind of um, mention as a way of getting us here. Um, the chapter four looks very closely at the importance of his network of correspondence. He's really inviting readers uh, um, of his books to, to try out um, their own experiments, to try things for themselves. And that chapter looks in detail at the ways that readers literally saw differently. I'm using quotes here for listeners mm-hmm. who can't see my fingers. They saw nature differently um, as a result of engaging with his work and then going out and um, seeing themselves. And so mm-hmm. that, that, chapter looks carefully at those kinds of practices and also some critiques that he's leveling at Jesuits like Kierker who are not seeing um, in the way that he's uh, that he associates with um, good natural history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that the next chapter after that actually takes us into another case study of this, or that's at least related. Mm-hmm. And that looking, it's looking at the ways that Railmuir and his network are also seeing kinds of processes that are actually really difficult to see, and that mm-hmm. becomes part of the story. So this chapter looks closely at um, attempts to see asexual reproduction and regeneration and as a way of getting at a larger debate about spontaneous generation in this period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you take us here into all kinds of fascinating um, spaces, the seashore, um, the home, where some of the figures in this chapter are trying to look at aphids copulating. They're looking at polyps. They're going in and cutting um, cutting up sea anemones and sea stars. One guy describes his work in these words. I have to read this. Like victorious soldiers who, after defeating their enemies, chase the hussars, severing the arms or legs of those they encounter, I cleaved in two all I found. I strewed here and there arms, half-cut bodies, bodies cut into two pieces. He's cutting up sea stars. So a way of getting at this, and I hope just that one quote will give listeners a sense that there's a whole lot going on in this chapter, and we'll just talk about a tiny bit, bit of it, cut a part off. Mm-hmm. You know, in our mm-hmm. form of warfare. Um, could you say a little bit about why are they so interested in these processes of regeneration? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for you, what maybe what are one or two of your favorite mm-hmm. um, moments in which that's happening here? Right. Well, this is a chapter where I get into a material that actually has some more. Um, resonance with theoretical debates that were happening at the time about living matter versus inert matter, about what is life, about how is life uh, generated, how is matter organized into um, into living things, etc. And and actually, this is the topic which got me into uh, interested in Raymond initially because in my previous book I did a lot of work on theories of generation, which also had some experimental um, sides to them, but specifically around the opposition between uh, preformation and um, and epigenesis and the 
um, you know, um, living, uh, whether living matter has properties that, um, that brute matter does not have and so on. So that's kind of the background to the, these investigations into regeneration and, um, and asexual reproduction or parthenogenesis, um, in aphids. So, um, this is really of all the insect topics um, that these guys are looking at, this is the one that sort of resonates the most with these bigger issues, and that's why the debate about spontaneous um, generation, which uh, you might have thought um, had already been settled in the 17th century, and in some respects it had been, but the um, uh, Reamur's Jesuit critics, uh, for reasons best known to themselves, um, brought brought this back up in a way. I mean, I think he was surprised that it, the spontaneous generation was still alive um, in, in the 1730s. Um, so, um, so yeah, but at the same time, these investigations, as you mentioned, into parthenogenesis and aphids or, or regeneration in, in sea stars and sea anemones um, were also part of this very detail-oriented, um, you know, investigations that we've encountered in, with our with the other examples that we've seen before, and so um, I do think that the phenomena like regeneration had a very um, a very wide interest, or the um, the famous freshwater hydra, or which was known as a polyp at the time which could reproduce both by budding and then um, by, uh, um, yeah, if you cut one in two, it'll grow two new ones, right? So this is a very weird phenomenon, and you can kind of see how it's perfect for these guys who are interested in both the everyday. I mean, this is like a totally mundane little thing that you can barely see. It's very slim, you know, half an inch big. and You pull it out of a ditch, and it does these amazing things. So, um, But it's it's kind of like belongs in this spectrum, this much wider spectrum of really, you know, the, the everyday. So I kind of like that, that tension between this sort of theori- theoretically interesting, you know, what is life, you know, the big questions, which by and large, these guys are not engaging with directly at all, I should say. Um, these are not theorists, by and large. I mean, you can find theoretical statements in what they're doing, but they are not, um, you know, expounding on novel theories. Um, but that is there, um, yeah, nevertheless. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's so many examples of um, people who, uh, you know, stay up all night watching the single aphid, you know, one after another emitting the little um, offspring and then isolating them and, and watching these so-called virgin births happen over and over again. Um, you know, the kinds of uh, ex- Extensive, um, obsessive—you could say—levels um, of attention that this kind of this kind of um, work takes. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can see how um, these types of reproductive or generative uh, phenomena, you know, like play into um, the kinds of techniques that these guys have to develop for, or are in the middle of developing for. Yeah, I'm not sure that answers your question, but... No, that's actually great. It brings us into the material, and um, and I'll bring us back out of it okay. <laughs> in a sec to, to move uh, further into the book, but I also just want to um, take a moment to to also mark for listeners, this was this is a chapter that really um, encapsulates what a pleasure the book is to read, because mm-hmm. as, tre- is it Trembly? 
Tremblay. I'm going to translate all of this into New Jersey now. <laughs> um, so as a Tremblay is um, describing um, in his writing that, you know, he, he sort of writes to Ray Almir and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm engaging with this thing you said and this thing you said and I, all that's great. And again, I'm translating this into New Jersey. But he's like, but what was really weird is like I was looking the other day and I saw these things and they had tentacles and they were green and it was really strange. I don't know whether they were plants or animals. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. And so then he does um, all these observations and mm-hmm. he tries to get Ray Amir, um samples of living ones and this is a whole... The thing I loved, though, and I'll just sort of say this, um, the thing that I loved about that part of the chapter is that you don't, the the mystery is maintained for the reader as we read through the Mm -hmm. account. We Mm -hmm. don't know what it is either. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you're sort of watching him, Mm -hmm. you're experiencing that process of discovery with him as you're reading about the process in a way that I think just is really, really narratively difficult to do Mm -hmm. and is really a beautiful part of that chapter. Thank you. Let me just say one thing about that, which is that, so the discovery of of regeneration in the polyp is kind of, it's a well-known story in the the history of the life sciences in this period. And I was trying to take that um, that story and discovery, or what you will, and put it in the context of the reading of... Well, for Tremblay, he's reading Ramier's works and emulating them. And so in the, in the chapter four, which we didn't talk that much about, about the readers, um, I talk a lot about how Ramier uses his books to recruit observers. And Tremblay is, and actually Bonnet as well in Geneva are perfect examples of, you know, young readers who had not yet established as naturalists who get inspired, who they do exactly what he wants his readers to do. It's like, too good to be true almost. And then in this case, you know, there's this fabulous stuff that comes out of it. Of course, the first person they write to, um, this is true for both Tremblay and and Bonnet, is Réamur in Paris. Neither of them is in Paris. Um, And so they get plugged into his network and then it sort of blossoms from there. And and the, mm, the insect books, which by the way, came out sequentially. So they didn't all six volumes came out over the course of, of several years, um, elicited this further work in a way that, um, yeah. So in other words, I'm trying to put this, what is kind of a spectacular um, result in a way, in the context of this, um, in a way, very ordinary, you know, uh, systematic, but inspired by reading. But so there's a very interesting play between, you know, going out to the ditch and, bringing back water and looking at it under the microscope and, you know, knowing who to get in touch with when you want to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, which books to read and so on and so on. So, yeah. So people are getting in touch with Ray Almir um, and his material, not just through his printed works or through mm-hmm, his correspondence, mm-hmm. but also through his collection. And the next chapter, actually the next two chapters, um, bring us into birds. We move from, well, we're still looking at insects, but um, we're we're introduced to the importance of birds in various ways in these uh, last two chapters. So chapter six, um, again, purely in the interest of time, we're going to only barely scratch the surface of an extraordinarily rich story here um, that talks about the importance of Rayamir's collection as one of the places that, as you say, any serious naturalist would visit, but also a crucial part of his household. So this looks at the material consequences of the collection as both part of his household and also um, a a place to visit and engage 
and part of his practice. So the chapter takes us into a lot of elements of this. Um, if we were viewers, how would we have experienced the collection? What kinds of materials were in it? How was it arranged? Birds become really important to this story. And um, that you also talk here about the importance of the kinds of uh, writings that Rayomir is producing about preserving specimens and about these collections. And a lot of that does that the bulk of that doesn't get published, right? But he just mm-hmm. excerpts a, a, like a four page pamphlet that then circulates and um, produces other kinds of collection, you know, materials mm-hmm. that then come into his collections and vice versa. And there's a whole discussion about that. So there are a billion, million things we could talk about about this chapter. What I want to ask you about is um, an element of this that I found fascinating, but that may not scream out to, to listeners. So I want to just kind of mark it, which is the sources for understanding this collection and its history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you talk about uh, an inventory, you talk about materials like that. What were the kinds of materials that gave you access to these ma- mm-hmm. materials, right? And, yeah. and, and how did that frame the story you were mm-hmm. telling in this part of the book? Right. Well, okay, so um, I should say also that, um, I mean, you, you flagged the connection of the collection to the household, which is absolutely essential because the collection occupies a bunch of rooms in whatever residence um, Raymure happens um, to be to be living in. And I wanted to kind of bring the collection to life in a certain sense because the collection is the place where the specimens are dead. Um, but there's a very intimate collect- connection between those dead specimens and the techniques of preserving and so on. And the uh, living, whether it's insects or birds or whatever, that that the same people who are working in the collection in Ramier's house had also, um, in many cases, observed these, um, especially for the insects. Um, the birds are coming in from all over the place. But so trying to uh, recreate, in a sense, not just like what was on the shelves and in the cabinets, but how are these things being used? So on the one hand, I did find an inventory... Um, well, it's a very rough inventory because it's an inventory made of Ramur's possessions after his death, and it kind of goes through, um, you know, what's in each room, roughly speaking. It's not a catalog in any sense. I did find a manuscript catalog of parts of the collection. Again, it's kind of a list of items that says also who sent them, so it's very interesting from that point of view, that was made by one of his um, assistants. So these are kind of... Um, in a way, very dry documents. And if you just read the inventory, it's just like a list, right? Um, But again, trying to triangulate between those kinds of, um, and, you know, I I was able to say, you know, what's in, first there's this room, and then there's this room, and then there's this room. You could walk, kind of walk through it. Um, But I was also able to then, through mentions, um, especially in, in letters of various kinds um, to try to see like who was coming into the collection um, in the case. And here I'll just refer also to chapter seven, which is about the poultry because um, there's poultry investigations going on in the yard. So the chickens are outside, chickens and all kinds of other poultry are outside in the pens and there are various kinds of breeding experiments going on and so on. Um, The collection is upstairs in the house um, and um, people are going back and forth all the time. There's also a laboratory where they're working on preservation techniques and where they're doing taxidermy and so on. And so these different spaces, again, it's about spaces in the household, because we're now including the outdoors, um, are all interlinked together. And 
interlinked together by people moving through them and doing different kinds of work in these different in these different places. And in fact, some of the I'll just say that you know some of the chickens in the yard after they lived out their lives, um, uh, you know, I'm sure they met a natural demise, um, were stuffed and put on the shelves in the collection. And so there's this very immediate connection in that case between you know what's happening outside. Um, and the chickens are not just being kept for uh, eggs, but they are also being experimented with. And then that you can also then see them in stuffed form upstairs. And so anyway, that's, yeah. Right. And this actually is, um, well, I'll only ask you very little about this so that I don't take you two hours yeah. of your time. But um, since we are in with the chickens and the, and the um, mm-hmm. chicken spaces, um, one of the really important things that that chapter does, I, I think you're referring to, is to at least, again, from my experience as a reader, simultaneously point to the importance of the chickens as egg producers and mm-hmm. as sort of commercial, mm. part of a commercial economy, as well as being part of this economy of specimens and economy of, of sort of natural history correspondence. And um, what becomes really important, at least it seems yeah, yeah. in this chapter, right, is the importance of the fact that... Um, so in um, Realmir's experiments and trying to artificially incubate eggs, he's using heat from bakeries, right? People who are getting in touch with him and trying to incubate their own eggs are sometimes doing it because they want to sell eggs right, or sell chickens. And um, the chapter also talks about the importance of a kind of gift exchange economy of you know, people need chicken thermometers. And so there are also there's that kind yeah. of level of economy. Did you want to maybe speak to, since this is a real concretization yeah. of... I mean, that kind of relationship is something that's happening throughout the book. Um, do you want to maybe speak to that part of the story? Well, just briefly, because I know we're running out of time. And, don't, um, don't worry, we're fine. Uh, you know, I, it, this is a whole other topic, which does somewhat run throughout the book, but you do see it most here, which has to do with the connection of natural history investigations of all kinds with what we can call for, uh, in a sort of shorthand way, utility. And that can be uh, commercial utility, kind of um, political utility, um, etc. And very much the investigations on incubations of, of eggs here. Now, Ramuir himself is not planning to become an egg merchant, but he's very interested in um, devising techniques that can be applied throughout the, the land um, to improve egg production. And so it's very much uh, kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of a cliche in a sense, but it's very sort of public spirited kind of utility, which very much lines up with the function of the Academy of Sciences in at least one of its guises. And so um, at the same time, though, there are more theoretically interesting things going on because he's uh, breeding chickens to try to track the inheritance of traits. Um, and this sort of opens up a whole topic about uh, about um, inheritance and generation, again, coming back to those big issues, which, again, Raymuir himself is rather reluctant to engage with in any kind of theoretical level, but are coming into his um, experimental designs there. So, yeah, I think the whole utility question is really important to as another layer, which we haven't talked about that much, to 
the motivation for this kind of work. And again, it's not just, it's not really a cut and dried commercial utility. Um, it has these other resonances, you know, the good of the nation or, you know, um, and certainly one of his concerns with the egg incubation work is to make it practical for people in the countryside to put into practice. And that is always going to be an issue um, that he doesn't 100% know how to deal with, but is present in his writing about this, about this stuff. So, yeah, okay. I feel like I've just scratched the surface there. But, oh, we can, we can only yeah. just scratch the surface, yeah. right? I mean, it's, there's so much going on there. Um, and I'll also say for uh, listeners, another reason to definitely make sure you read that chapter. I mean, you should make sure the book, but you get to read the phrase, I'm waiting for rumpless roosters. <laughs> and that's one of my favorite, many favorite phrases um, in the book. So, why is Ramir waiting for rumpless roosters? You will have to just read this chapter and you will find out. <laughs> so as we move um, to the conclusion of our conversation, there's also an epilogue. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to sort of mark that um, for listeners. This looks at the legacy after mm-hmm. his death and um, who at the time of his death in 1757 left what seems to be a huge amount of material. I mean, papers, manuscripts, stuff that was never published, materials. Um, and one of the things that um, comes out of the experience of reading that epilogue is a sense of, wow, there's so many possibilities, right? I mean, this is, this seems like the beginning of you could, you know, potentially write like a billion, million books that write. I mean, it just, it gives a sense of this richness and this future of possibility of an opening up um, of this field. And so the last thing I want to ask you um, before I ask you if there's anything else you'd like me to ask you um, is really just to, to kind of comment on that. Given your experience with this collection and with the materials, what are some of the most um, maybe one or two of the most promising areas of that material that you would love to see um, mm-hmm. more work on that might make use of stuff that people haven't really been making use of and that what seems like a, a hugely rich collection of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, part um, I, I'm quite interested in how Ramir was thinking about his legacy. Um, and he, he was not a, you know, he did, he was... He worked really hard, and he did a lot of different kinds of things. But he was not a, a systematic. You know, he left a big mess at his death. His papers were a mess, and he had many unfinished projects. Um, and at the same time, I think he imagined that his legacy was going to be carried on by m- many of his proteges and his all the people we've been talking about. He also imagined that his corresp- that his sorry his collection would survive. I don't know why he imagined this because he knew he left it to the Academy of Sciences. He knew they had no space for it. He knew resources were tight, but he left very specific instructions about that. So there's the the question of Ramur's immediate legacy, which kind of disperses into the collections of the um, the um, Royal Botanical Garden, um, but the the yeah so your question about what could be done um with these materials i mean i i guess i have really tried to mine these materials for what i think there's probably more that could be done with the uh, bird material because for that i really um i did it from the point of view of the, i i looked at it from the point of view of the collection but ramier's work on birds very much got incorporated into uh, later 
especially by Buffon, his big rival, uh, ornithologies. Um, and I think there's probably more to sort out there. Um, but I did want to make also the point in the in the epilogue about how this kind of investigation continued on, even though in some ways it was eclipsed by the birth of biology around you know 1800 and the study of um, organisms as organisms and um, going into um, well all the uh, the kinds of laboratory work that were um, quite different from the sort of natural history investigations that we've been talking about. Um, but obviously natural history then continues. I mean, if you look at Darwin, he's grounded in that, this kind of natural history, right? Um, so yeah, so on the one hand, there's this very long story about continuing this kind of observation. Um, on the other hand, in the history of biology, natural history starts to look really old fashioned. Um, so, but I, I guess I would argue that there's, uh, there's still a lot of, you know, uh, this kind of behavioral, um, biology happening. Um, it's just kind of, uh, another, another kind of strand in this, in this, in this story. Yeah. So Mary, thank you so much. I've already You're taken welcome. a ton of your time and You're there's welcome. a ton of material that we, we didn't even barely, we never even got to, let alone scratch the surface of. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention? Well, just very briefly, you did actually mention this, but I, I do want to, to um, flag the importance of thinking of natural history as part of, in the period that is, as part of uh, well, you could call it natural philosophy or physical science. They called it la physique as a physical science that uses the, the tools and techniques of physical science. That is to say that um, in the historiography, natural history is often referred to mostly as being about either natural theology or about classification. And I really tried to unpack those assumptions um, and by looking at at the kinds of work these guys are doing um, to recognize that the same kinds of techniques, whether it's thermometry or um, the use of the microscope or chemical analyses are being used in natural history. Now, anyone who really looks at natural history in this period you know, knows this, but it's, um, it's worth thinking about how the physical science, it's really about how the physical sciences and natural history are really intimately linked in this period. Um, and you get, and then that is, um, something that you get to again, by looking at sort of nitty gritty of what's going on, you know, in a place like Ramier's house, but many other places, um, as well. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and congratulations on what I'm sure is obvious, um, a book I really loved, and it's just great. So thank congratulations. And thank you so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.